podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Nesson Dorma, the pod that takes a look down the grid of 80s and 90s football and finds Craig Hignett's hair moose underneath a pile of David Unsworth's discarded Samosa wrappers. I'm your host, Lee Calvert, and it's been quite a while. It's been about six months since the last episode, but we hope the miserable summer of only having modern football to watch and a World Cup at that and the constant refrain of association football mayhaps returning to its domicile didn't depress you too much as you're trying to get through the summer. But never fear, because we're here to shake you from your contemporary slumber and transport you back to a simpler time, a time that reeked of dupe aftershave and echoed to the sound of wannabe by the Spice Girls and, when you look back now, a mystifying overconfidence about being British. That's right, it's 1996, and joining me to take a look, a look back at this fevered time is author of a book about this very year called When Football Came Home, and a fine one it is too, Mr. Mike Gibbons. Hi, Lee. How you doing? Good, good, good. And squeezing time for us in between theatre reviews and being generally eloquent about cricket is the Scouse Oracle himself, Mr. Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary. It's lovely to be back. Yes, it is. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, there is a Twitter account, at Pod, a website, nessendormapod.com, and there's mailing lists, and you can email contact at nessendormapod.com. You want to get in touch on the email and all that kind of stuff. We're available on Acast and we're available on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I think it's called now. So, you know, tell your friends and hopefully you're glad to have us back. And we're certainly very glad to have you back. Thank you very much and thank you for your patience. So while the current season may be about a month old now, I think, roughly that, isn't it? Uh, We're taking this as our opening weekend. And so this episode will take a look at the opening weekend of the 1996-97 season which could be argued as the most 90s season of seasons. Uh, games, The games for this opening season, this opening weekend of that season, were played on the 17th of August, 1996, and I think one on the Sunday, and then was was it Monday night football then? Can anyone remember? Was it a Monday night game? I think it's um, very likely because I remember Monday night football with... Um, with uh, Ebenezer Good, who was the band that did Ebenezer Good? They were on the pitch at Crystal Palace, and that was that must have been ninety two or ninety three. So they hadn't thrown it I would out imagine there, that. Yeah. yeah. So whoever some some games on Monday as well. Now I've already mentioned at this time that um, Wannabe by the Spice Girls was number one on the sixteenth, seventeenth of August. It was that whole summer. Before that, the number one was Forever Love by Gary Barlow, and following Wannabe was the number one was Flavor by Peter Andre. Now, that is one trifecta of bloody awful right there, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what I don't want, what I really don't want, it's that. <laughs> so, before we get into the details, what what were you fellas up to in the summer of 1996? Gary, what were you doing? Were you still in um, fashion well, then, or had you moved on? Uh, well, I was I was um, standing up in front of students and, and teaching a little bit, and I was... Uh, also doing a lot of union work at that time. But um, the week before that start of the season, I was at Nebworth for uh, Oasis. Oh, of course, that was the summer, uh, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was a long day, I remember. <laughs> and 
the, the Chemical Brothers were the main support, and I don't think I was quite in the Chemical Brothers hitting zone when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, their drum particular loops thing for stick. you, Gary. No, I'm into and, drum loops. Yeah, and it was it was it was a very long day, and I remember riding the motorbike back and um, thinking, uh, I'm kind of glad it's over, really. Uh, but the other thing I was doing is rather given away by the fact that my uh, my first son was born at the end of May 1997, so make of that what you will. <laughs> and that was the last time that you even bothered, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Mike? What were you up to in August 1996? Well, I just worked this out today, actually. Uh, two days before this set of fixtures, I got my A-level results. Uh, and found out that I'd be going to university in October that year. So I was probably incredibly hungover still on, <laughs> on this uh, Saturday, I'd imagine. Um, yeah, that whole summer was a very football-orientated summer. My A-levels actually finished. I did my last A-level the day after England beat Holland 4-1. So that was something of a distraction. Uh, fortunately, though, I was doing the A-level of media studies, which is, you know, the whipping boy of... Um, a level subjects <laughs> and my school didn't so, even offer that so yeah so the whole summer was just this kind of hinterland between school and university really and i did you know a lot of mid-90s stereotype things i went to ibiza for two weeks um i think all of the week leading up to these fixtures i would have been listening to the nebworth gig which i taped off the radio yeah i was um, a big oasis fan at the time um if you want to talk, we're not going to talk about Euro 96. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit. But if you want a full breakdown of Euro 96, you need to go back to Series 1, Episode 12, back in the archive there. And that'll give you a full breakdown of, of Euro 96 if you want to remember that a little bit more. In terms of what was I up to in this August 1996, I had just failed my second year at university through excessive going to the pub with a gang of my friends and was about to resit my second year in the midst of all of that. Um, and that was it. I was working in a factory which made, in the summer, which made soft furnishings for Marks and Spencer. And everything was done with, a, you know, like a, an air-powered an, an air staple gun. And what was really funny was that the, the guys who worked on the line used to, when they'd hit their bonus target for the furniture, the furniture they would shoot themselves through the top of the finger with a staple so they could just go home. <laughs> And I was working there as a labourer, and I was stood there one day, and I said, oh, I can't be arsed with this today. And big Nigel, who worked at the top of the line, says to me, do you want me to shoot you? And I went, no, you're all right, Nigel. I've, I'm just a bit pissed off. I don't want you to maim me so I can go home, basically. So that's yeah. what life in a factory was like for me. Yeah. Sounds like the trenches at Passion Day. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, yeah. that's what they did there. It's like, no, sorry, we've got a break in an hour. You don't have to, you know, I don't need to be invalided back to Blighty. It's fine, you know. Did you get to recline on the sofas that you were? You could go into together? the foam room, and there was a little somebody had built on the top shelf of the foam room a little bed for people who were a bit hungover and stuff, and you could go and skive in there for ten minutes at a time. You used to have that as well. Yeah, so that that, that was so I was tw I was yeah second year of uni, so I was a bit older than you, Mike. I think but yeah, so I was what was it? I was twenty in in August nineteen ninety six. I was six years into teaching at a university. <laughs> God dear me, I'm so old. Right, enough of this. Um, if you wanted to watch something other than football, by the way, this weekend, uh, you could watch on BBC Two. They had three Orson Welles films back to back. Ooh, can we can we guess them? It's well, it'd be here all day. We've got Macbeth. Well, Citizen Kane, Touch no, of Evil, and no. uh, The Trial. No, it was Macbeth, Jane yeah. Eyre, and Ferry to Hong Kong. 
Dear me, that's very much in the B League for us. It is very much in the B League. This is on BBC Two, followed by The Proms, then followed by Dancing in the Street, a rock and roll history documentary. If you wanted to watch BBC One, of course, Grandstand was still on in 1996, which we all miss. Best theme tune ever, possibly. (laughs) Ray Stubbs hosting, featuring today Football Focus, Cricket Focus. They don't do that anymore, do they? They gave up on Cricket Focus. Show Jumping, featuring the Derby meeting from Hickstead. Oh, the famous bank and the Devil's Dyke. Really? I know nothing about yeah, show jumping. Absolutely. <laughs> I have no desire to know anything about show jumping either. Racing from Newbury, the world's shittest sport. <laughs> uh, golf coverage. People always said up there, I like I like going to the races, but he said, No, you don't like going to the races. You like drinking near horses. That's what you like doing. <laughs> if they allowed you to get pissed at the zoo, you'd go to the zoo and do it. You wouldn't go to the races. But yeah. Um golf coverage from Woburn. And then followed by um, Coneheads, the terrible Dan Aykroyd film. Due South, about the bloke who was a Mountie who came to America, culture clash comedy. And, of course, Casualty, which is still going on now. And then Match of the Day. So speaking of Match of the Day, let's cover the um, match, the things that are actually happening in football. So this was we mentioned before, Mike, this is off the back of Euro 96. So what's the mood music like in sort of England and English football? Well, for the, this coming season, I mean, the anticipation, I remember being huge for 1996-97. Uh, um, I mean, a lot of that, you know, it's off, it's off the back of Euro 96. So you have the big spike of, uh, you know, interest generally across the country. Um, and I think what helped was the season before had been one of the Premier League's greatest seasons, I guess. It's, I mean, I'd love to use the word narrative, but it had all these stories running through it. You know, you can't win with kids. Mm. Uh, Cantona coming back from his ban and scoring all the goals that won the league, the sort of doomed romanticism of Newcastle, uh, the, the white suit cup final. <laughs> and you also had, uh, also contained the greatest, probably the greatest Premier League game, the 4-3, uh, you know, with Newcastle and Liverpool. And I think you can draw a line back from... You know, all the hype about the Premier League being the best league in the world, probably back to that game and that season. I mean, that game wasn't a hype job. It was an, an amazing game, but it's kind of an indication of where I think the coverage of the Premier League would go afterwards. There was a, there was a line from it by Roy, uh, Roy Evans. He said he called it kamikaze football. Mm. He said, oh, we'll even play it, you know, with the defenders two on two, three on three, and they're up against the greatest strikers in the world. And I remember hearing that and thinking, "What the greatest strikers in the world?" You know, in the you know for Newcastle, Liverpool, but it's. Uh, but then the Premier League after thereafter, the Premier League did start to be, you know, spoken about in those kind of terms. And I, I mean, a, a big part of that was all the players that were coming in. So, the year before this season, you had two big things um, happen to facilitate this. I've mentioned this on the pod before, but I'll mention it again mm. in lieu of anything else interesting I've got to say. <laughs> but. Uh, so the Bosman ruling was passed in December 1995. So that changed the rules completely about, you know, the amount of EU national players you could play. And also the Premier League, they re-signed the TV deal in April of 1996. So all of a sudden you had all the clubs in the Premier League with all this cash on the hip and now the opportunity to go in and bid for players all over the world, basically. And, uh, and that, that they did. They, they did, yeah. So you mentioned the signings there. There's the, obviously, this is, this is remembered of the kind of summer of mega signings. When you look back, it, I mean, there were some good signings, don't get me wrong, but when you look at the list of sort of what was considered to be the big signings back then, of which some of them were big, you had 
Roberto from America, we're looking at it now. You had Roberto Di Matteo and LeBuff who went to and Viali all went to Chelsea. I think Viali went on a free, didn't he? When you speak of Bosman, did he go on a free Viali? Yeah, he was free after the European Cup final. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Who were pretty were pretty big. LeBuff had won a World Cup, of course, but or was was gonna head towards winning a World Cup, but he never never convinced me greatly, Frank LeBuff. No, he was well, he was in the France squad at um at Euro ninety six, mm. but he didn't um he didn't get anywhere near the pitch, I don't think. They had Blanc and Desai and so and no one had really seen him. Really, in nineteen ninety nine he had no idea how to deal with the mighty Ian Marshall who came off the bench for Leicester and terrorised him <laughs> before Steve Guppy scored to basically take the title away from, from Chelsea that year. Um you had the, the the two big signings at Middlesbrough for Rizzio Ravanelli and Emerson. Uh, and I think what a lot of people maybe don't remember, or they do remember, but I certainly didn't remember, is that Janino was already there. In my sort of memory, well, if you asked me, and I said Janino came in the summer of 96, he didn't, he came in 95, so he'd already been there a year. Yeah, Ravanelli... that, was a bit of a, that was a bit of a game changer for me because the idea of Juventus and Italy centre-forward turning out for Middlesbrough <laughs> was just... Like two, even two or three years earlier, but ten years earlier, it was just completely inconceivable, and you know that that showed that the Premier League was. I, I mean, I'm tempted to say the word serious. It, it was serious, but there was there was such volume of money um, coming through. I mean, it looks like Tuppence halfpenny now, but at the time, it was it was literally incredible. And I remember seeing that. That Middlesbrough side and Emerson, who's probably the the forgotten one of the, that trio, um, he played as a kind of very uh, deep lying midfielder. He mm. may even have played in the back four, and he was, he was a Makaleli before game. a Makaleli. Yeah, he was playing a different game to everybody else on the pitch at Goodison. The amount of time he had, the amount of technical ability to kill a ball, to take it on the half turn. Um, he might as well have been from another planet. And he, he kind of disappeared, I think, although somebody will tell me he had a remarkable career in Finland or something afterwards. <laughs> but um, he was he was absolutely brilliant that day. And what I felt about 96, and you can see it when you look at those highlights, is you could almost see the game changing before your eyes as the, as the players become much more technical um, the long balls going out of the game, but the the idea of say taking the ball on the half turn, every player expected to be comfortable in possession. Um, the harem scareum stuff was disappearing. Um, the old Wimbledon uh, approach. Um, the who was it? You know, Lee Charles, somebody or other at the FA who wrote that coaching manual, who said you know got to get it in the mix sort of. No, oh, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, the the the, yeah, the, the long ball of guy. maximum yeah. opportunity. Uh, Charles Hughes, it was, and um, that was disappearing out of the game. Uh, it was it was partly that the that the foreign players were coming in who who the cliche has it were, were better technicians, but they were they were obviously better technicians. But there's one other thing that that you see, I think, as a kind of turning point in ninety six ninety seven. It becomes recognised when Wenger goes to um, Arsenal in the autumn of that that season. The players stop looking like blokes on the terraces. They stop looking like sort of average 20-something blokes carrying a little bit of weight and 5 foot 10, 5 foot 11, something like that. And we started to see the effect of dietitians. We started to see the effect of the gym work. And we started to see players who looked very different to the people on the terraces. Um, some of that was was through 
the the Wenger revolution that was uh, to Arsenal, but it started before then as well. Players got bigger, they got stronger, and they started to move further and further away from the the kind of park footballers that you you still saw in the early nineties coming through. Um, you know, obviously the 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 greatest of them all was Gaza, and sometimes we look back at Gaza with such nostalgia because he was a kind of street footballer who came through. Maybe people would say Rooney was one um, as well, but but they were they were disappearing. And sometimes in matches in 96, you could see the changing of the guard. Yeah, and I think there was... But even as... I, mean, I remember thinking, as, as, as probably still now, really, I'm always still amazed that, you know, kids in this country now, when they come through from schoolboy, are in a, an academy from the age of about nine now, aren't they? And yeah, why is it, for example, we still produce so many players who can't use both feet? It, it absolutely staggers me that you can come through an academy and you've got, you, you got people who can't use whichever foot is not their most dominant foot. And why do we still... I don't go into this too much because it's about now, but you mentioned that point about you know foreign coaches came in, foreign players came in, brought in more technical ability, people could see more technical ability. It's interesting that we still, and by we I mean England and the, the Premier League and the academies, still don't produce a great number of technicians, do they? Well, my answer to that is one that I've probably made before at some point on the on this pod, is that, and it was definitely the case in the 90s, is that our players used to train and not practice. And I remember hearing about, about Beckham, and they said, it's remarkable with Beckham, because at one o'clock, when all the other players go home, he stays behind and he practices free kicks like he was some kind of man from Mars. <laughs> Whereas in every other sport, you practice the techniques. But in England, we trained. You know, there were stories where the, of, of um, you know, Jock Wallace's famous hill at Leicester, where he had them running up and down sandbanks. So the first three weeks of the season, the players aren't allowed to touch the ball and all of, all of this kind of stuff. That was still the ethos at that time. Right. And I think to some extent, we're still paying for it now. In every other sport you practice, there is no excuse whatsoever then and now for a corner being taken and hitting the first man it kicks a dead ball it's like throwing a dart at a dartboard and missing the board it doesn't happen in darts it shouldn't happen in football any views on that mike uh well i mean yeah that was definitely still the case in the 90s wasn't it i think well it's changed now with the whole st george's park and you've got all those kind of young lads who won the youth tournaments um, in 2017. But, um, yeah, I think this is this. I mean, this season we're going to come on to talk about. I think there was a definite change in emphasis after this. I mean, Wenger is a big part of that. Uh, the change in diet particularly, um, you know, he's you, always credited with. Yeah, you mentioned Emerson there, um, Gary, but, of course, you have to remember that the counterfoil to Emerson in that borough midfield was Robbie Musto. <laughs> Yes. It's all very well having this lad who can play on the half term. What you need is a lad from Middlesbrough who can just basically run up and down in straight lines a lot. So going back to the signings, it was Emerson, he came and, in. And, and you said people. he's... Don't forget, Lee, he could kick people. He could kick Robert people. Wilson. Jamie Pollock as well, I think, was coming through at Middlesbrough at this time. Um, the, so um, you mentioned about Emerson disappearing. He literally disappeared. He didn't come back from Brazil when he went home for Christmas, I think. Was that this season? I think it was. Um, and I was in Middlesbrough University at this time. So, and the buzz around the, the town was remarkable. And we'll probably talk about this later. But of course, they were docked three points this season, which is what you know oh, yeah. you could argue effectively got them relegated. But we'll come on to that 
uh, later on when we kind of conclude what happens after this first weekend. Who else came in? Patrick Berger. It's post-96, Euro 96. Patrick Berger came in to um, Liverpool. A, a, a wearing, young... Tommy Fleetwood's, wearing Tommy Fleetwood's hair, if you recall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's a, uh, sorry, I've just knocked a drink over. Um, and some, some, some unknown midfielder uh, called Patrick Vieira came in. I wonder what ever happened to him. Yeah, well, he was signed um, before Wenger got to the club, actually. So in the week leading up to this first round of fixtures, uh, Bruce Riott was sacked by Arsenal. Um, it took them a while. I think it was about a month later that Wenger was announced. Um, the favourite for the job was actually Johan Cruyff, but it went to Wenger, who was you know, a, a complete unknown. But uh, before he arrived, they signed uh, Patrick Vieira and Remy Gard. Um, so there's a little indication of what the people who were in I guess in the know with French football. But, um, I, I remember you know, when I remember when Wenger was announced and it was on the news and it was a, it was a newsreader and she was a female newsreader. That was that was not relevant. I remember because that's the vision, that's the, the image is in my head. And she, he was so unknown, they didn't know how to say his name. And she said, "Arsenal have appointed the manager Arsène Wanger as the because obviously they're always French. That must be how you pronounce it. But of course, he's from Alsace, isn't he, and all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, they didn't even know how to pronounce his name. I do remember that." Uh, one of the things that was also important in terms of that Rioch side is that Arsenal, one could argue, had the, two of the most technically gifted players were already there in Dennis Bergkamp yeah. and Paul Merson. And um, you know, Merson's become something of a, a figure of fun now, but he was a fantastic footballer, way ahead of his time for, for an English player. And of course... We all know about the off-field activities, but on the field, um, he was he was as technically gifted as any English player, uh, arguably before or since. Um, so the nucleus of a, a side was there, waiting for the the Wenger revolution to to come. Um, I remember my father um, saying about Wenger um, because. Um, there was some concern, you know, he was this professorial figure who'd only played at the fourth level in France and he was coming from Japan, wasn't he, a, a, across here. And, you know, the, the proper football men, as John Nicholson calls them on, on Football 365, were, were rubbishing him before he had a chance. I remember my dad saying, what, why, what have they got against this bloke? Why, why won't they give him a chance? And then, of course, within about two weeks, we realised that we were dealing with a, a, a substantive figure who was... Uh, who was likely to be a a, a major um, a major figure in in British football? And just a little nod in the direction of a, a guy who uh, perhaps doesn't get the credit he deserves, which is David Dean, because um, he was Arsenal chairman at the time, and he went out on a limb and uh, got Wenger because he believed in him. And um, you know, Dean gets a, a bit of a mixed press now, but um, you know, he uh, he his time at Arsenal was uh, was was one of innovation and one of of a deep commitment to a really kind of new way of running a football club and a new way of playing the game on the field. So, yeah, there's Vieira comes into Arsenal. We'll talk about Arsenal. We'll talk about the games in a minute. But our, the legendary Carol Poborski signing, we, we covered that when we did um, Great Tournament Bad Signing, which was back in episode four of season one. If you want to go back and have a look at that. Um who had 22 minutes on the sweep of when Gary's going to tell us what his dad thought of something? <laughs> <laughs> I'd have loved to have met your dad, Gary, genuinely. He sounds like he'd be the best person in the world to talk to for an afternoon. 
Yeah, um, you may not have said that at the end of the afternoon, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, Proboski goes to United. We've covered that before. We don't need to go into that again. Uh, Benito Carboni went to Sheffield Wednesday. I think, you know, I remember it all being very exciting because he was called Benito Carboni. Obviously, when you look back, he wasn't exactly a rip-roaring player, Carboni, but he did seem to be exciting because of his name. Alan Shearer when was... He was good. When he was good, he was very good, Carboni. Um, Ended up at Bradford it's... after this, didn't he, after Sheffield Wednesday? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a few of them did the the rounds of some of the kind of northern sides, but I I thought when he was good, he was very good. He was a he was a bit of a poor man's uh, poor man's Decanio, but you know he can be a poor man's Decanio and still be pretty good, I think. <laughs> of course, the big marquee signing this summer was Shearer, Mike. That's right, isn't it? Is this summer? Yeah, that was fifteen million. Yeah, that was, went through I think about a week and a half before uh, the opening. Uh, round of fixtures um, so there was a big debate all summer after Bureau 96 was he going to sign for Manchester or Newcastle United uh, Beckham and Gary Neville actually met him uh, I think it was backstage at a Brian Adams concert Oof. and they tried they tried to talk him out of uh, going to Newcastle but, um, so his heart was set on it and his um, his unveiling was covered live on Sky News. I remember that quite vividly. And uh, that was all. That, again, oh. this this was this was the, the that was the precursor to transfer deadline day madness. Now, wasn't it? Really, that was the seed sown. Again, when you talk yeah. about drawing the line between something happens then and what happens now, and the fee as well. I mean, it was. I think the transfer record in Britain before this had been eight and a half million. I think it was Coley Moore to Liverpool, and this didn't just shatter the British record; it broke the world record at the time as well. So just a little kind of indication of how much money was coming into the game. And again, if you want to talk, if you if you want to find out more about world transfer records through time, then you can go listen to set episodes thirteen and fourteen. Oh, episode thirteen, part one and part two, where we do go through that list. Yeah, so it was quite a big deal that he he signed. Of course, I do feel though that the signing of Alan Shearer did somewhat overshadow another signing that summer that Newcastle made, which was Steve Harper. He went on to make about 1.243 million bench appearances for Newcastle before retiring in 2017 at the age of 76. He was basically the perennial sub-goalkeeper behind any number of people. Behind, I think he was behind Shaka Hislop for years, Shea Given. Just, he just sat there. The life was of a, it was a- who was a Czech lad who, who died, unfortunately? Oh, Pavel... Pavel Cernicek. Yeah, he was behind him as well, I think. Um, yeah, so Steve Harper again. But that's when he was signed. He must have been about 12 when he signed, but he, he was there forever. Um, that's a kind of a run through the kind of big-ish ones. Interestingly, when I was looking through as well, Ian Rush signed for Leeds this summer on a, on a, on a free because Liverpool had finally let him go. Also signed for Leeds this summer, which again amazed me when I look back on it, was Mark Hately. Yeah, well, I think that was a free transfer to cover. A, I think they had a bit of an injury crisis at the start of the season, hmm. so uh, it was it was also it was Howard Wilkinson's last hurrah. I think he got sacked quite early into that season. Uh, that summer, it was after the United loss, wasn't it? They got they flirted him. Yes, that was it. Yeah, and that summer he kind of gutted the Leeds midfield. He'd sold Gary McAllister. Um, he sold Gary Speed. He brought in uh, Lee Sharp. He broke. Actually, I think he equaled the the Leeds transfer record to bring Lee Sharp across from United. He signed Lee Bowyer from Charlton as well. Yes, he did. I in, full, about 18, in, in full yeah. shit house mode then when he was eighteen. But yeah, he's um. Yeah, so he signed it. I again. 
again, the way the mind plays tricks on you, you forget that this was still Wilkinson. In my mind, I couldn't remember if it was Graham or were we in the O'Leary period by this phase. And actually, no, it was still it was still Wilkinson. Any listeners out there, if you haven't seen it on, if, you, if you're an Amazon Prime member, um, there's actually a documentary called, I don't, know if you, I don't know if you two have watched it, called Do You Want to Win? Which is about Wilkinson and take, Wilkinson's takeover of Leeds. The oh, biggest right. surprise for me is how well Vinnie Jones comes out of it. Comes out of it incredibly well. And um, a guy we talked talk about on the pod a few weeks ago is all over it as well. If you remember us talking about Mr. Sess Pod. Oh, yeah. Well, he's on in it because he was Leeds' community relations guy in the late 80s. It must have been a hell of a job, by the way, trying yeah. to turn that squad upside down. Yeah, um, one of the differences that we, we find is um, that Leeds, Mike will know this, um, correct me, Mike, it was it 91 or 92 that Leeds won the, the last of the old first divisions? 92? 91, 92, yeah, just before the yeah. Premier League started. Yeah. So, the... The next season after that was famously, I think, the, the worst defence of a title or something. I think they won one away game and finished about 12th or something like that. But back in those days, the start of the 96 season, a manager who had won a, a title in 92 was still living off that and was still widely respected. And there was not this kind of Pochettino's lost three games in a row, let's sack him, um, because, of course, the... the that social media wasn't there, the endless phone-ins wasn't there, the 24-7 sports media weren't there. And so um, you could, as a, as a manager, live on uh, your laurels for not just for a week or two, but you could live for a, a year or two on your laurels. And Leeds were sort of going nowhere. They were soon to get embroiled, I think, in all kinds of financial shenanigans when they were selling essentially futures, weren't they, on their, on their stands and season tickets. And they was it Peter Ridsdale going for broke, trying to win the European Cup well, and well, all he, of that? He basically mortgaged everything on being in the Champions yeah. League every year for the next yeah. 10 years and it's really yeah. not as easy as that is it <laughs> no they did get to the semi-final though so well i think know, that's they, what they, gave they, him this confidence to basically yeah. effectively uh, go long on that strategy uh, which was yeah that's it but when you when you compare the the sort of uh panic that takes over certainly fans and media if you get sort of three losses in a row they, they were perhaps simpler perhaps gentler perhaps better days then were were where management and football realise that not everybody can win everything and therefore sometimes you've got to stick with the guy because he's the, the best option. That said, I couldn't wait for Everton to get rid of Walter Smith and um, <laughs> that's another one. Um, last couple of things on signings. Mike, uh, United signed Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this summer. Who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did he score any important goals? For... Now, you're a United fan. so. Yeah. Fergie made a lot of decent signings. Where do, where does Solskjaer rank for you? Oh, blimey. I mean, he definitely have to get in a top five, um, maybe even in a top three. Um, Cantona's a top, obviously. So. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, it's just in, incredible how it worked out, really. So he came in that summer of 96. He was one of a group of... Um, five signings with uh, Ronnie Johnson, Van der Howe, uh, Paborski and Cruyff that we've already mentioned. So he, he, did, he didn't come into the club with any kind of great fanfare. But then in his first season, the 96-97 season, I think he scored 18 um, Premier League goals. And, and his, his kind of United career is remembered as being, you know, this impact substitute. But mm. he started a lot more games for United than I think people realise. Yeah. Um, 
you know, scored, I think, something like 150 goals. Um, you know, the one we all remember, the, yeah. the one in the camp near him. And he'd talk about dining out for the rest of your life. I mean, he'd, he'll, he'll never have to buy a drink in the, the red half of Manchester again, obviously. <laughs> but beyond that, I mean, he's... he's I can't even, we haven't got time for me to name all the kind of crucial contributions and goals that he scored in games for United. It's just. Yeah, and, so I, kind of, was, and was, I kind of guess you were going to say that. That's why I kind of led you into Because I think a lot of people still do have this image of him as being this super sub who just was brought on for the last 20 minutes when actually he was, he was a far better footballer than that, Gary. Yeah, well, he was brought on for the last 20 minutes to score four against Everton. I remember that. <laughs> um, but. I was in the, I was in Oslo. Um, I think at the time that he signed for um, Manchester United, and I remember seeing his face on the back of the papers because, of course, he never saw any of these foreign players. There was no uh, online news, and Telly didn't really cover it or anything. And he looked, he looked about fourteen. He really did. Yeah, he but did. Yeah. There was not, there was not a football fan, or indeed a non-football fan in uh, Oslo, who didn't think he was a fantastic player, and that Manchester United were getting a real star. Um, and and so it appeared. Uh, it appeared to be. I think he's he's one of the most underrated players of the uh, of that decade. And um, you know now uh, his his worth would be sort of astronomical um, because. Boy, did he uh, did he make a difference in the games that he played? Not just as a substitute, but as a starter too. We spend uh, you know quite a bit of time on this podcast, I think, making the point that there was no internet in the period that we're talking about. But it's quite relevant to the impact that someone like Solskjaer would have had, and not just Solskjaer, but you know Georgie Kincladze and you know Tony Abora and these kind of people. There are signings that you know you'd never heard of. You might have if you read World Soccer, I kind of picked up a bit about them. But you know, there's no YouTube montage of their goals for you know the Norwegian side that they played for or anything like that um mm. and I think yeah that kind of mystique of those the signings of that summer I mean some were dreadful flops obviously but I mean some the ones that were hits the ones that came out of nowhere were just it's it's hard to emphasize now what a kind of thrill that is now now you kind of you know everything about a player you sign and you can find it out instantly as well you can just go to YouTube yeah. and get it uh, last thing on signings, Tottenham did, have a, did not have a great, they actually won this opening weekend, but didn't have a great season. And in a way, I think a lot of that was one indicated by what happened in the opening game. And we'll talk about that in a minute, if you don't remember what it is, ladies and gentlemen. But also it's indicated by the only signing that they made, that Jerry Francis, the man who's had the same haircut since 1975, you really can't trust that in a person, to be honest. Um, signed, the only signing Tottenham made was Jason Cundy. He now of talk sport, talking utter bollocks, um, Fair. But it says a lot. I mean, you look at Tottenham now, when you look at, and, and the kind of, is, is it fair to say a tragedy of Tottenham? But there's something, there is something tragicomic about Tottenham, certainly through this period, I think. Um, and it's kind of summed up by the only signing that Jerry Francis thought he needed at this point was Jason Cundy. Now then, let's move on to the actual games of the opening weekend of August the 17th, 1996-97. We're just going alphabetical order because it makes sense that way. We've already talked about Arsenal. Uh, they won 2-0 at West Ham with goals from John Hartson and a penalty from Dennis Bergkamp in front of 38,000 people at, at Highbury. We've already mentioned this was Arsene's, Wenger's first season in charge. A fairly solid win for them, albeit Steve Jones, who was playing up front, who I had no memory of whatsoever, playing up front for West Ham, missed an absolute howler when David <laughs> Seaman kicked the ball straight at him. 
Uh, well, I remember him winning the London Marathon, but I don't remember him playing for West <laughs> Ham. He's, he's the scout. He's, he, isn't he a scouser? Steve Jones, the runner. Isn't he from Liverpool? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Isn't he the one who ran so quick in that marathon? In which, which, which Olympics was it where he went out so quick in the marathon that he was like literally walking and looked like a hollowed out shell of a man in the last 10 yeah, minutes? Probably 84 or 88. I it was 88, I yeah. But um, what's interesting about Arsenal, you talked about signings, right? But when you look at this first season of um, Wenger and you look at who left between Christmas, well, between Wenger coming in and the end of that season, here's a list of the people who, who Wenger thought were no longer useful to him. Gavin McGowan, Steve Morrow, John Hartson, Andy Linegan, Chris Kawamya, Glenn Helder, Ian Selly, I think you might have gone alone actually. David Hillier, Eddie McGoldrick, and Paul Dickov. Yeah, not many of them could take a ball on the half turn, could no, they? That's, that's, uh... It's like he must have phoned up the donkey sanctuary and said, "Could you bring a van down?" And basically, because I've got a few that you need to pick up, sort of thing. It's um, but you know, you can just imagine Arsene <laughs> casting his eye over the training ground, can't you? In his first few weeks and going, "What the fucking hell is all is is that lot?" <laughs> <laughs> There's an awful lot of forwards in there. Like how many excess centre forwards did Arsenal have at that point? Yeah, who's a forward there? Hartson, Kiwamia, Dickov. Dickov. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've got to remember that with Hartson, he was either suspended or injured for two games out of three. So He you scored know. a brilliant Hartson esque goal in this game. He just kind of come flying in and, like, you know, like, d- dived across yeah. the six yard box and somehow managed to get it in there. So that was the Arsenal game. Anything? Anything do you want to say on anything else in that Arsenal game, Mike? Uh, they were in that weird period of stasis, weren't they? Yeah. Um, I think the Rioch sack him. I think it was literally four days before these these games. So yeah, and Wenger came in. Yeah, just as the season was starting, effectively. Yeah. Didn't and to think that they've only had two full time managers since then is uh, it's quite <laughs> it, it rather it rather books the trend, shall we say? Doesn't it really it? does. Yeah. Uh, the aforementioned terrible Tottenham. Uh, Played Blackburn Rovers at Ewood Park. They won 2 0. Two goals from Chris Armstrong. He was uh, yes, I remember. Attack at that time. I remember Chris Armstrong a couple of years later scoring a hat trick at White Hart Lane against Everton. I think, I think he was a kind of player. Do you, who did the only score memories you have involved people. Well, I was there. Everton, basically. Yeah, I was. I was there. It was an awful long walk back to the Seven Sisters Tube Station. I can tell you, it's never, never a pleasant uh, walk. But on the twenty eighth of December, after seeing a Chris Armstrong hat trick, um, he I, he was an interesting player in in lots of ways because you get the idea that if he had coaching that's available today, he would be much better because he yeah, had a I lot of what that, you look actually. for in yeah, a forward. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was he was quick. He had an eye for goal. He could go um, both ways could, on his feet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you if people are wondering what kind of player he he was, he was he was a little bit like a kind of Wilfred Sahar. He played wide and came inside. He could be a little fragile, I think, but um, he he had it in him to be a better player than he was. And um, perfect you know, for you, Tottenham, then, wasn't he? Basically, well, <laughs> you know, come on, lads, it's Tottenham. You know. Um, yeah, so we've already mentioned the, the, the mediocre start for Tottenham season with the Jason Cundy signing. Then on top of that, then, um, I think you brought it up. What happened to Gary Mabbott, Mike? Oh, God, this was horrible, yeah. So Graham Fenton of uh, uh, Blackburn sort of slid across Mabbott as he was uh, 
welling a ball down the line with his left foot and broke uh, Gary Mabbott's leg. At this point, Gary Mabbott's 35 years old. And yeah, poor Gary Mabbott. I mean, he's so shit out of luck, this bloke. He, <laughs> yes, played, yeah. he, he played his whole career with diabetes. Uh, he had his face caved in by John Fashionu with a horrific challenge. He never went to a major tournament with England. He scored a own goal that decided an FA Cup final. It's like, how unlucky can one guy be? And he seems like such a nice bloke as well that you, you just don't want all this tragedy to perform. And his kind of bad luck is, is summed up because when you watch it, it wasn't it wasn't the tackle that did it. I know it sounds stupid, but actually what happens, Mabbott cleared the ball and followed through and kind of booted Graham Fenton. I know, I know Fenton yeah. was flying in, but it wasn't like a standing leg job. And no, he, kind I mean, of, ever, he kind of ever, booted Fenton and, and smashed his own leg into like 56,000 pieces, basically, the poor fella. Well, it would probably be a straight red card now. Oh, I think Fenton, it would be. I mean, and back, I'm not back, saying, back, it, I'm not saying yeah. it was a good tackle. I'm just saying, you know. Yeah. But I think everyone did that tackle then, you know, yeah. several times a game. And, it, and you know, it didn't often result in something as, uh, as horrific as that. No, he was like the fast show's unlucky Alf or something, wasn't he, uh, Gary Mavis? He oh. picked up the paper on a Sunday morning and read that he's out for three months because he's... Uh, he's from the uh, West Country, not Yorkshire. Yeah, for, for oh, over while making, making the toss or something before the, the game started. We shouldn't we shouldn't make fun because they were horrendous injuries. They and were, know, yeah. Often they were they were not his fault. They were very clearly the fault of others. I mean that that as as Mike says, that's the the kind of tackle that was done sort of all the time, and nobody thought anything of it. Nobody would have dreamt of even a yellow card back then. But on modern definitions of being out of control and endangering your opponent, then it's it's a red. And look, the game is better for it. I am not someone, even though I'm I'm kind of the oldest and the most nostalgic and everything else. I am not someone who thinks the game was better for the the hard men being able to get away with anything short of murder. The game is much, much better for the uh, the refereeing as we see it today. Uh, moving on to Highfield Road, where Coventry City were losing 3-0 to Nottingham Forest in front of uh, 19,500 people. And it was three goals by Super Kevin Campbell. Kevin, Super Kev. Kevin Campbell was born in Lambeth in 1970. He, as, he was a striker. He joined Arsenal in 1985 as a schoolboy once scoring 59 goals in one season for the academy before making his first team debut in 1988. He hung around for quite a few years, scoring seven years, actually scoring 46 goals in 226 appearances before being offloaded by Rioch in 1996 and signed by Frank Clark at Forest for 2.5 million. And this is where we find him here in this opening game, banging in a lovely hat-trick. Well, he was an Everton hero, of course. He 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 wasn't there at, at that time. He arrived, I think, towards the end of the ninety eight ninety nine season March and scored nine. He signed. He signed yeah. for Everton. Yeah, yeah on, on either there or thereabouts on on what was then uh, deadline day, and uh, you know he he came after a row about racism in at uh, in Turkey. And, you know, he, he came to a club whose record on racism was not good, um, but he was very quickly embraced by the fans. And he, he embraced uh, Everton and still speaks very well of his time at Everton. Well, he basically kept um, you up, Gary, so they should have embraced he did him. Keep us, he <laughs> did keep us up. And um, he also he also took a box at the ground. There's only eight. There were only eight boxes at uh, Goodison. The stand was built in 1970. Um, the last of the non-cantilevered fans. And um, he had a box there that he paid for out of his own pocket. I think that was after he'd left uh, Everton. 
and um, he very much respected and, and loved. And one of the things about Kevin Campbell is that he was much more of a technician than, than we ever thought was going to be the case. And you can see that in that in that hat trick. His control is good. Um, he he looks like the kind of player who would who would thrive today. And you kind of have the idea that at Arsenal he was a bit of a battering ram um, because he had the kind of build of a light heavyweight and he was young and a bit raw. But um, from his middle 20s onwards, Kevin Campbell was a was a very fine player. And as I understand, um, I don't know whether this record still holds, but for a long time, uh, his 82 goals in the uh, in a top flight of or in the Premier League, um, where he played four seasons out of the Premier League, and indeed I think he started in the old First Division, but his 82 goals made him the, the leading scorer in the Premier League who never got an England cap. And in typical right. Kevin Campbell style, he's not bitter about this. He just recognises it was a time when there were lots of options for the England manager up front, you know, Shearer, Sheringham, Robbie Fowler, um, probably uh, plenty of others. Uh, Matt Letizia only got a handful of caps of 10, I think. So um, he understands that. And he is such a, a decent bloke. And whenever I see him doing the bits of media work that he does now, I... Uh, I, I so, um, Mike, as Gary said, it was a lovely hat-trick this, isn't it? It's got everything in it, really. Yeah, it's three superb goals. I mean, the first one is, is it the first one where he kind of, um, he's played through and he just, he slides in, he knows he's going to get clattered by the goalkeeper mm. and they just smash into each other and he thinks so. But the third one is the one we, it's the kind of goal you score when you've already scored two goals and your confidence is flying. He just, he takes down uh, a header from a long ball, fakes to shoot, chips it, into the area and then just kind of drills it in with his left foot. I mean, I'd, I'd take the point what Gary was saying about, you know, there, there were other good England strikers around at the time while he was playing. But if you look back at how good he was, particularly in the early 90s, I mean, in the 1991 season, he came into the Arsenal team when Alan Smith was injured and scored yeah. a load of goals in like February and March, I think, that helped win them that title. He was in the starting team that, that won the Cup Winners' Cup, the FA Cup, the League Cup, all under Graham. I mean, if you think of some of the players that Graham Taylor was playing around then up front, uh, <laughs> in comparison to Gavin Campbell, it's amazing. I don't think he even made a squad either. I don't even think, um, you know, he's ever called up and even looked out on that basis, which uh, yeah, seems extraordinary. Yeah, I think he was one of those players that was always seen as, as that one rung below, wasn't he? And once that kind of gets stuck, it, it really stays stuck. Yeah. In the mind of, 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 like, you know, people who make these selections. Yeah, and he was kind of in Ian Wright's shadow a little bit as well when Ian, when Ian Wright went to Arsenal. But um, one quick thing about him, actually, uh, towards the end of his career, and this will sort of nail him back to the mid-90s, he started a record label. Yes, uh, he did, didn't he? Yeah, label, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Thinking about 2005, and his first signing was uh, Mark Morrison of uh, Return of the Mac uh, mid-90s fame. So he made a few but bob that, off that, I imagine, because it sold a few, it shifted a few, Return of the Mac, didn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think he signed, he signed him well after that. So he, oh, I yeah, see, right, okay. And I think it, it ended up in court as well, being dragged through court, the horrible fall. Oh, that, that sounds more like it. Yeah. <laughs> so again, at the end of this season, Forrest were relegated again for the second time. After 92, was it, they were relegated? 93, 92, can't remember. 92, 93, yeah, clubs yeah, last season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Campbell scored 22 goals in the uh, what was was the championship by then um, to help them return as champions from that division. He then sodded off, as you mentioned before, Gary, to Trabzon Spore uh, and then left when the president called him a cannibal in a racially motivated uh, tirade. 
The fans loved him though, and actually when he on it in his press conference where he was saying that he was leaving, he was actually flanked by the club captain and one of the leading players of the club as well. They supported him all the way. So it seems that he then obviously you'd mentioned he went to Everton, effectively saved him from relegation in '99. I think he's still the fourth the, the fourth top scorer in Everton's history still. Um and then after that went to West Brom and then slowly kind of drifted away. He um but again it kind of backs up. It seems everywhere he went he was liked. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And he had a an off-field uh life in which, you know, he he did his music, but he did more than just music. He put his money where his mouth was. And uh unfortunately I think he was involved with Mark Morrison, who doesn't have a particularly yeah. good <laughs> reputation. But he he was working with um with the, the the kind of lads with whom he grew up on the council estate in Lambeth um, and helping them in, in their careers. So, you know, um, like lots of Everton fans, I won't have a word said against them. Speaking of Everton, we head to Goodison Park now where Alan Shearer's Newcastle and the great Keegan machine comes rolling in to one side of Stanley Park, Gary, and yeah. uh, soundly loses. Yeah, um, it's, it was nice to start the season uh, with a win in glorious uh, sunshine. And what we can see on the headlights, uh, the headlights, uh, I think they were caught like a rabbit in the headlights because Duncan Ferguson was at his most chaotically destructive. Um, he, he did have he did have matches, and you know the kind of looking back with rose tinted spectacles, these these matches came every couple of weeks, but in reality, they were far less frequent than that. But he did have matches where he was just completely unplayable and you just couldn't do anything with him. And teams did get wise to that and just let him head the ball, um, didn't challenge him and uh, tried to pick up the, the the second ball. But in even in those those headlights, you can uh, those <laughs> say headlights, those highlights, <laughs> you can see just what a just what a handful he was. And of course, Newcastle, not long after that, were to make him the highest paid player in in uh, in England when he was uh, signed on a weekly wage of forty thousand pounds a week. <laughs> and um, that made him the highest paid player, would you believe, uh, just a few years later. But um, one of the things that's interesting about that match is, is that Newcastle had some future Everton players playing for them. There's Steve Watson, who uh, was usually used as fullback by uh, Newcastle, but once scored a hat-trick for Everton, believe it or not, playing as a as a kind of makeshift centre-forward. He used to do uh, that relatively regularly in his career as well, Steve Watson. He was actually a very good footballer, Steve Watson. Not, not of was, the highest was, quality, but a decent, no. a really decent footballer. Yeah, he was a kind of poor man's Paul Maidley in that he could play all around the pitch, but um, Maidley was a bit more of a Rolls Royce, whereas Steve Watson was a kind of Ford Sierra, if you like. But um, no, he was he was good. He was a solid. He was a solid pro. Um, and uh, he was playing for Newcastle uh, that day. There was also uh, David Ginola, um, who later went on to play for uh, Everton briefly. And, of course, coming on as a substitute um, was, was the great Peter Beardsley, um, who, who later played for Everton uh, uh, as well. And um, Gary Speed was playing for Everton. He went the other way, uh, along with uh, Duncan Ferguson, who played. they played for Newcastle, of course. And, uh, you know, a touch of nostalgia for me because uh, Joe Parkinson, was playing before uh, an injury ended his career. Um, I won't say Joe Parkinson was as good as as Roy Keane, but um, he was a box-to-box midfield player, and uh, he was a, a real hero for Evertonians. He came up 
through the ranks. He played, I think, at Wigan. You mentioned that, Lee, earlier on. And um, he was fantastic in Everton's Cup run in, in 95. And it was it was a, uh, it was a, a kind of minor tragedy, uh, obviously uh, not the case for him personally, but it was a it was a minor tragedy for Evertonians that his career did end just as it was likely to to bloom into something really rather rather special. And it, I think it took Everton quite a while to to come back from from um, from missing their their dog of war in in Joe Parkinson. Yeah. But he was a lot more than that. He was a lot more than just a destroyer. He was really really a player. He was he was actually from Wigan, a big Wigan rugby league fan as well. He used to go and watch them regularly. I actually saw Everton this season, and that this literally just popped into my mind, and I did. I saw them lose at York City, yeah, in the Coca Cola about... Cup, uh, because my uncle was at, was doing a post doctorate at York, and I went to visit him, and we went to watch this game, and the travelling Everton fans. It was three two York City three Everton two. Gary Speed scored. He had a horrible game. Gary Speed. And I remember the Everton fans, if you were leaving, they were saying, oh, he's shite, he's shite. And somebody went, and it, you know, I can't do a scout accent very well, but said, said, yeah, but he supports us, doesn't he, lads? In that sarcastic way of saying, you know, well, we've signed him because he supports us. He's not actually very good, which is probably a bit unfair. But um, do, you want to, do you want to hear the Everton side that night? Um, because the York it City night. Bad. Yeah, we lost 3-2 to York City um, in September 96, so only a month or so after. Southall was in goal, Hottiger, uh, Earl Barrett, David Unsworth, Andy Hinchcliffe, Andre Konchelskis, Joe Parkinson, Gary Speed, Anders Limpar, Graham Stewart and Paul Rideout. Um, there was no playing of squad players in those days. You know, every match was as important as the, as the next match. So um, there are only 7,800 at uh, Bootham Crescent, but... Uh, but there we were, turned over good and proper. A Graham Murty uh, goal made it 3-1. Gary Speed got one back yeah. in, the, in the last minute. You couldn't, you uh, couldn't handle the magnificent giant plank of wood that was Neil, ex-Oldham, Neil Tolson up front. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. evidently, evidently. So um, we, we, were, we were full of... of that kind of result really throughout the 90s were, were Everton. Um, and uh, maybe we're going to be full of it again with the uh, <laughs> silver in charge. At least it's not Allardyce. Anything we're, but Allardyce. Yeah. We're going to get a few 3-2s and 3-1s before this season is out both ways, I feel. So there you go, that's Everton. Derby had a humdinging match, Mike, against Leeds, a 3-3 thriller, of which there's a couple in this opening weekend. Um, we've already mentioned that Wilkinson's still in charge. Um, uh, yeah, go on, Mike. Sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, this is this is about as exciting as this season got for Leeds. So <laughs> by the end of the season, they'd scored 27 goals in 38 Premier League games. So this game uh, accounts for one-ninth of, <laughs> one of their season total. So after, I think it's after uh, Wilkinson departs, then George Graham and David O'Leary come in uh, with Graham as the manager, and they somehow contrive to have 10 goalless draws in one season, which is like something you would see from Serie A in the uh, like the mid nineteen eighties or something. So it was, uh, yeah, I think the opening day was about as good as it got for them. But there's there's little signs of the the shoots of Leeds's future recovery in this. I mean, Ian Hart scores, uh, Lee Bowyer, who we've already mentioned. I think he gets the equaliser in this, doesn't he? Or he go he scores a goal that puts Leeds three to ahead. Yeah, he does. And then um, yeah, and then and then Darby he, back, then Dean Sturridge know. scores. Dean Sturridge is almost a perfect 1990s footballer in my mind. He's kind of 
small and nippy and you thought he was quite good at the time, but he really wasn't very good and he would never get anywhere near a Premier League now type player. If he played 300 matches, he he had the ball under control for one minute of those 300 <laughs> yes. matches. Yes. It was forever just beyond his control. He was toe poking it in. He was chasing after it. But you could you could yeah. make a you could make a career. You know he's the he's the equivalent nowadays of kind of Dwight Gale, I suppose. Although Dwight Gale's a much more technically he, gifted player. He's kind of like the road really. He like me meeped around the field, not looking yeah. quite in control, didn't he? Yeah, so we've we've mentioned um, Everton, uh, Middlesbrough, and then the net, the second three, or which is the most famous, or Middlesbrough three, Liverpool three, and with a Ravenelli hat trick on debut. Um, Amazingly, look at this: Stig Inga Bjornaby opened the scoring for Liverpool, right? And if you didn't pay much attention, he looked his the way he moved and his finishing looked exactly like Robbie Fowler. You notice that in the highlights? I mean, obviously he's not. But if you just glance quickly, the way he kind of moves into the sort of left side of the of the penalty box and wangs it with his left foot into the into the far corner is is very Robbie Fowler esque actually. Yeah, four or five inches taller than Robbie Fowler, but I take the point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and and Liverpool were in that horrendous Bailey's Irish cream round neck kit yeah, that they think- had. I don't think they'd learn anything from their white suits in the cup <laughs> final a few months earlier. as a atrocious kit they played it's in. truly but... truly atrocious yeah. John Barnes scores Robbie Fowler scores as well John Barnes how old would John Barnes have been here 34 mid to late 30 yeah, yeah he... still moved lovely did you see, I mean when you watch the, the highlights though did you I mean did you see that all of the defending in this game is absolutely terrifyingly bad oh, it's woke, wasn't it? yeah it's almost like yeah. this, it's like there's three of you stood there and one guy just walked in between two of you and you've just not even bothered to look that he's there or you don't even care basically yeah on both the... sides as well talking talking lads talking <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> looking looking you're all looking at the ball i think is what they were doing and they had some good players, Liverpool, up front, though, to be fair. They had Collymore and Fowler playing in that Collymore. game. Mark and Wright John was still Barnes playing. Ghost John... into the penalty box. Mark yeah, Wright's still playing, looking about 50. Bjornaby. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it was incredibly exciting and, in a way, was kind of emblematic of what this season and what the Premiership was at that time, wasn't it? All these signings coming in, Fowler coming through as a young player, this, like, what's seen as a, a, a fantastically exciting game, which, of course, it was. Um, as I said, I was in Middlesbrough at the time and Middlesbrough ended up getting relegated this year because they, they got docked three points for not going to play Blackburn, if you remember. I think it was Blackburn. Yeah, they got, they got to both cup finals as well, didn't they? They, yeah, lost they, the, uh, they lost the League Cup final and the FA Cup. I mean, I think this was... Was I that the one the with Di Matteo's fastest ever goal? Was it 42 seconds or something in one of those games? Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, Chelsea, Middlesbrough, the FA Cup final, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think this, this thrill with Liverpool... Uh, Middlesbrough I think it's it's undoubtedly the game of the day I'm, I'm, I think from memory it was the league game on match of the day and just the excitement around this at the time because Middlesbrough they're even being talked up as potential you know title <laughs> challenges at this point because they brought in you know Ravenelli and Emerson and they already had Janino there and they had Nick Barnby and they had Brian Robson who just had you know a very good summer you know managing the team with England uh, and then you had the you know the the Liverpool team that had gone pretty close the season before in the FA Cup and in the Premier League. And I think, yeah, Ravenelli hitting the ground like that straight away and scoring a hat-trick 
with just the, the giddiness in the ground. I mean, you can see it when the goals are uh, are all flying in. It's quite something. I also remember, do you remember Ravanelli used to do that celebration where he would peel back his shirt and put it yeah, over his head? Yeah. There was a, th- I remember a thing at the time that Cellnet were Middlesbrough sponsors and they kicked up a real fuss about the fact that <laughs> their, their logo wouldn't be seen every time Ravanelli scored. So at one point they were trying to get Ravanelli to wear a vest underneath his shirt with, with the Cellnet logo on it, just I don't think that ever kind of came to fruition. But uh, yeah, there was a. I mean, it's a fantastic game just because of the sheer volume of errors in it from the, from the defenders. Just made it very exciting. Uh, I I think Lee, uh, you may know a bit more about this than than I do. The reason why Middlesbrough didn't play that game, from my understanding, is that it was a flu epidemic going round. Yeah, they basically said we don't think, have the players, so we can't yeah. do it. Yeah, and and that and that was their defence, and it wasn't yeah. listened to. And, um, and kept, Steve Gibson was going to come on and do a George Weir or something and kind of play. At, at, well, he was younger than uh, younger than some of the players, but I mean, it was. I a don't genuine, think they were believed. It was a genuine thing. Yeah, it was a genuine thing, though. And um, and I felt they were harshly treated. Uh, I have to say, um, they were tapped on the head a bit as little Middlesbrough, and you know, you go, you go off now with your three-point penalty. And um, I, I'd be surprised if that were to happen today. But if it's going to happen to someone, it'll happen to a Middlesbrough, not to a Manchester City, not to a Manchester yeah, United. Well, I, when I, was when, Michael? Michael, no. When was the 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 two points and one point for Manchester United and Arsenal? They're docking because they essentially had a a, a Barney on the pitch. That was around. Oh, that, that, that was nineteen ninety ninety one. And uh, yeah. Arsenal, Arsenal still went on to win the league. I mean, he had um, Tottenham got docked six points for their financial uh, irregularities. I think in ninety four, ninety five, but then they later got them reinstated. I think. Yeah, I think Middlesbrough got the very rough end of the stick there. Well, I was, of course, up there. I remember Pat, who worked on reception in the student union, who was a Middlesbrough woman through and through, was basically uh, forcing everybody that walked in to sign her petition and woe betide anybody that didn't and defied her because she was a terrifying northeast middle-aged woman of a particular type that you did not defy when you came walking in. And even when you'd signed it, you still had to kind of show her where you had signed it so she'd let so she'd let you go so yeah genuflect but i mean it did get them i mean in theory you know if they'd had that three points they wouldn't have been relegated on on the pure numbers of it so you could see why they were very very upset but um after that sort of decent win they lost to chelsea um they had a draw with forest they won a few but then they had a horrible horrible run between September and December where they just couldn't win anywhere, basically. And then that kind of, well, that kind of carried, they, they beat Everton, Gary, yeah. <laughs> on Boxing that. Day, on Boxing Day. Yeah. Um, and then they just kept losing. So, I mean, that's team that they had. The trouble is, I think I go back, I made a joke before, for every Emerson, there was a Robbie Musto, there was a Neil Cox, there was a Nigel Pearson. He was solid enough, but not particularly great, you know. Yeah, I think there's a kind of style of putting a team together. I mean, I don't play championship manager or any or any of those games, but it is like when you take a middling squad and then just parachute in a load of just <laughs> massive names, three or four of them, and then they have to play with you know the the kind of average players around them, kind of thing. He was, st- was, really was still playing Curtis Fleming at fullback and stuff. You know, yeah. it was 
Yeah, it felt and like some kind of control experiment, Middlesbrough. <laughs> it did. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. And a bizarre thing was that the most talented player in that side, the most technically gifted, was also the hardest worker in Juninho, who gave absolutely bloody everything for the cause there. And he loved and, the Middlesbrough. He came back, and, didn't he, for a second yeah, spell? And he, he really and, loved the town and the club and I, the people, actually. I bet when, when uh, sort of the list of top 10 foreign signings of the 90s are put together. I bet he, he seldom appears in that top 10, um, but he certainly was one of the top 10 uh, foreign signings of the 90s. And, and you know, had he, played, had he played for a bigger club, maybe that would have been recognised, but he was, he was, you know, a really, really, really good player. He was Brazil's number 10, mm. and uh, he gave absolutely everything on it the field. It was jaw-dropping when he came over. Yeah, it was it like really seriously. Was. What I mean, what they must have been paying him so much and offering to pay his tax bill or something. Well, well they were talking of, of him as the new Zico, wasn't it? And he did have he did have things in common with Zico, roughly the same build, same height. Played number ten for Brazil. He wasn't quite as good as Zico, but he was still good. Hmm. So yeah, so that carried on, and Liverpool kind of where were Liverpool by the end of this season kind of stumbled through, didn't they? Uh, they finished fourth at the end. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh no, didn't stumble through at all then. But uh, yeah. So, it, well, it was we we again. If you want to have a bit more of a detail about that period, the Spice Boys period, episode ten of season one is the place where you need to go and have a listen because that covers that. With uh, I think it's I can't remember who's on that one. I think it's Rob and Scott Murray covers that one. Yeah, Rob's actually too busy. Rob's very busy writing a book. That's why he's not here for the first episode of this season. But he will be back. Right. So. Uh, let's move on to the last sort of few um, fixtures before we draw this to a close. Sheffield Wednesday 2, Aston, Aston Villa 1. Notable, notable for the appearance breaking through the wall of a certain young 19-year-old called Richie Humphreys. Born in Sheffield in November 1977, he came from a footballing family, Richie Humphreys. His grandfather, Ernest, played for Millwall and his dad had trials for Sheffield United. He grew up, a, uh, Richie himself grew up a massive fan of the Blades and later joined their academy before being released by them at the age of 13, which must have been a bit heartbreaking for him. He went on to play for Sheffield Boys, where the Wednesday scouts were not going to pass him up in such a manner, and he joined their youth set-up page 17 in 1995. After an impressive showing in pre-season, where he scored against AC Milan and Utrecht in a pre-season tournament, earning praise from Johan Cruyff, actually. Um, he was selected for Wednesday's opening match due to injuries to David Hurst. There's a surprise. And Mark Bright, and this is where we find him today, scoring an absolute thunderbolt, Mike. Yeah, I mean, this is the goal of this day, without question. I mean, I think uh, it was clocked going in at 97 miles an hour. Yeah, isn't, it like it the just... isn't it the fastest goal ever still, or something, in terms of the ball? It's definitely up there, I think. It's always, when you see the list of them, it's always kind of in there. And it's, yeah, I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I'd encourage you to YouTube this. It's... Uh, sort of headed clearance to the edge of the area and he just takes it first time with his left foot and he doesn't just put it past the keeper, he puts it in the top corner. Um, and yeah, he was, I mean, I was particularly interested, I was born in November 1977 as well, so it's kind of, you know, it's just, <laughs> What could have been? You know, in a parallel universe, what could have been, yeah. But um, you mentioned the Cruyff um, thing at the get-go there. What Cruyff said about Richie Humphreys, I think he just he just mentioned the fact that he'd been impressed with him in this pre-season friendly. Um that then got mangled and found its way back to England as Richie Humphreys is the new Marco Van Basten, <laughs> says Johan Cruyff. And it's something, it's something that never... Will we never, never learn? Hey, go on, yeah. I mean, 
Richie Humphreys, other than Beckham, I don't think anyone really kind of surfed the wave of this, you know, huge surge of interest in English football after Euro 96, quite like Richie Humphreys did. So he scored again on Monday night football, I think two days later. And then he scored one of the goals of the season a few weeks after that against Leicester, where he does a meandering kind of 50-yard run and then chips the goalkeeper. Yeah, he floats so, an absolutely beautiful yeah. chip, doesn't he, over it's the a, goalkeeper, yeah. It's like Daly Atkinson's goal. goal. Yeah. yeah, and that, that contributes to Sheffield Wednesday won their first four games and were top of the league after four games. And this was going into like the naming of Glenn Hoddle's first England squad as well, and there's this whole, oh, is Richie Humphrey's going to be in it? And, it all, and he did, because of his age and everything, he kind of captured that, you know, the arrogance of youth, the exuberance of youth that we, you know, you saw in people like Robbie Fowler then as well. And you just thought seeing him in those opening weeks of this season, well, he's going to have, you know, an amazing career. And he did have an amazing career, but, it, you know, it was a few yeah. runs lower. Um, That's a good point, actually. Because, well, he then, um, well, it, it all tailed off quite quickly for him, really. At, one story goes that Waddle, Chris Waddle was still at Wednesday then and was, was, yeah. men, was mentoring him because both being left-footed players and all that kind of stuff, attacking players. But ironically, due to Humphreys' outstanding early form and Waddle's age, David Pleat then let Chris Waddle go. And it's, you know, it's probably just one of those things where, it does, is it correlation or causation? But I suppose we'll never really know. But he, he seemed to kind of shrink a bit after Chris Waddle left the club. Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, you know, Chris Waddle... He's quite bitter about the end of his career, actually, if you ever hear him interviewed about it, that he kept getting moved on from club to club. And one of the reasons he said was behind this was that the managers that were taking him on loan and things were paranoid that he was there with a view to being, you know, player manager when oh, results right. went south and being installed. So I think after this, he went to, would he go to Falkirk, Chris Waddle, after this? I think he may have done. Um, but yeah, I mean, Humphreys, he, I don't think he scored again in the Premier League after that chip against Leicester. He did go to the. World Youth Championship with England, uh, where they had a kind of reasonably good run. But um, from there, it just it's just one of those things. It never worked out for him. But you know, because of the whole spotlight on the Premier League in those opening weeks straight after Euro '96, I mean, he's he's become sort of I don't know in a strange way, sort of an an icon of that kind of you know mid '90s kind of era. There are a few yeah players who had that kind of moment in the sun. They've done a couple of you know, really famous things. Tony Eboa, I think he scored two goals of the months back-to-back, didn't he? I remember Danny Kadamatri scoring in a derby for Everton, and then that became Danny Kadamatri's going to be the, the next big thing. Was, I mean, it, was, uh, it, was he uh, in the same Gary team as Michael Branch, Gary, Danny Kadamatri? Well, it was. I was going to mention, perhaps we, we should do a whole segment on the, uh, <laughs> the great players who never became great, because just at Everton, you could pick Michael Branch, you could pick Danny Kadamatri, you could pick Francis Jeffers, the fox in the box. Billy and, Kenny. I mean, yeah, uh, Billy Kenny. There were specific circumstances with Billy Kenny. Jack Rodwell, yeah. Uh, um, but I think that the, it was a time, again, where it was a point where football clubs were not really managing all aspects of a player's career. The, the agents were really there to do the transfers. They weren't there to look after the players. And I think there were more players in the 80s and 90s who flashed and then slipped through the net than would ever be the case today. I mean, somebody's going to tell me that there are plenty today and we just don't see them because, you know, they're, they're journeymen at Oldham and at, uh, and at MK Dons and stuff like hey, this. We've got Jose Baxter now, Baxter now, speaking yeah, of Everton player. But 
that's it. And there's a few Ryan Ledsons uh, I saw turning up in the in a championship and and so on. But the you know, there's a lot of talk about the likes of Phil Foden now, and you know he's not getting a game at Manchester City, and and um, you know when's he gonna when's he gonna come through? Um, there's a because it's much more known, and there's there's much more understanding of the the asset value of a young player. I think they're looked after a bit, sometimes for cynical reasons, but sometimes for for just decent human reasons. Um, but back in the eighties and nineties, there were there were those who who flashed briefly, like Richie Humphreys, and I remember that sort of hype around him as well. And then um, and then sort of. Uh, Went around the lower the lower leagues essentially, and you, you you kind of think, well, if you could do that at nineteen, you should really be able to do it at least that at twenty four. So what was what was going on? But you know, maybe that's sort of future time, Lee. We could put together a, a kind yeah. of flashes in the pan, but that's a bit pejorative term. What I what I perhaps mean are, are those who, for one reason or another, didn't really unrealized come potential. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but to finish off on on Humphreys, um, he did. He spent a few years there and led and had a slump. He never really recovered from. Really, was sent on loan to Scunthorpe and Cardiff before a trial at Cambridge was cut short by injury. He then he then moved to Hartlepool, where he actually became a, a complete club legend. Broke the appearances records, was part of their promotion push one what uh, well their promotion one year, and retired finally in 2017 after after a couple of years at Chesterfield. And it goes back to your point, Mike. Actually, he had a pretty bloody good career. I know it was in the I know it was in the lower leagues, but he was gainfully employed. You know, the, there's almost this thing that because he had this flash, I'm sure he'd prefer to stay in the Premier League, but he had this flash in the Premier League at 19. Then everything else that comes after it is kind of valueless in the eyes of people, and it's just not the case, really. Absolutely not the case. He was also a PFA guy, wasn't he? He became he, he took over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was chairman after between sort of 2013 and 15, was he? Yeah. I can't remember who he took who he took over from, but yeah, yeah. So actually, fair play of- to him. Yeah, because of that kind of flush he had in those few weeks in the Premier League, I mean, there's always going to be that, oh, what might have been about him in the whole, you know, he's never going to escape that uh, next Van Basten quote, even though it's it's obviously not true. But, you know, yeah, that shouldn't denigrate from, you know, the career he had at Hartlepool. It was obviously, obviously it was exceptional. And, you know, anyone in on this podcast and probably listening to it would swap <laughs> what they're doing for the, <laughs> yeah. the career that Richard Speaking speaking as a man who ten years ago was a member of the senior management team in a university and now pulls gauges around at wait at Waitrose for a living, uh, I have some empathy with <laughs> you. Uh, Sunderland Leicester were next nil nil in front of twenty thousand people. There's nothing to say about this match. It was absolutely diabolical. Well, you mentioned Steve Guppy earlier. I always think he looks like Father Dougal from. Um, from Father bit. Ted, and, bit, yeah. and once once had that uh, lookalike printed at uh, Football Three Six Five, and it did a lot of funny stuff. And unfortunately, the internet, as it does, has uh, has lost that, so it's gone forever. Was Steve Guppy the original wing back? <sighs> he, he, of that period, he, he was more. He was more of an authentic winger, I think. Steve Guppy, he didn't play that deep. Um, you know the the, the wing back for me. You mentioned him earlier, a man well before his time. I thought was Ian Hart. I thought he, Ian Hart. Uh, one could say Gary Stevens was a kind of a wing back. They were they were ostensibly full backs, but they were often ahead of the midfielders in the in the play. I thought Ian Hart was a fantastic player. There were a lot of teams playing three five two then actually. Like Liverpool yeah, were, played it. Yeah, Liverpool played it. Yeah. You know, Jason McAteer played at wing back for uh, Liverpool through the mid-90s and was pretty good there. 
I wouldn't be honest. You mentioned earlier, he was a wing yeah. back. Well, they were all playing 3 5 2. So the wing back became that wide player, didn't they? In a 3 5 2. That's what that's, yeah. that was effectively what it what it was. Mel Sterling, there was a lad who got forward at Leeds. Right then, then we come on to Wimbledon nil, Man United 3. Uh, Cantona scores, Irwin scores, and David Beckham scores some goal you may remember. Born in Leytonstone in 1975, David Beckham is David fucking Beckham. I don't need to tell you anything more about that. So um, this was, of course, the hello, my name's David Beckham shot, Mike. Uh, yeah, I suppose it, it, it's the one that everyone goes back to as the, as the arrival of Beckham. I mean, I think it goes back a bit further than that in my eyes. I think the the season before, the double winning season, 95-96, where Beckham had replaced Konchalskis on the right, he had a really good season then as well. Um, it kind of went under the radar with the a little bit with you know with the return of Cantona and the heroics of Schmeichel and so forth. But um, yeah, this goal it's it's often seen as the kind of changing of the guard moment for English football. Um, the arrival of Beckham and I think you mentioned the Spice Girls were at number one <laughs> uh, at the time as well. Obviously, they then became the you know the big celebrity power couple and. You know, as Still English are. football, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, but as English football was changing, um, you know, Beckham becomes emblematic of that change and that shift to a uh, celebrity. But um, the actual the, the three goals in the game are actually they're all really good goals. I mean, Cantona's and Irwin's are both brilliant goals, but they're just overshadowed by the one in the last minute. And I think actually, I think just before he got substituted, Cantona tried to beat Neil Sullivan from about forty yards and shanked it a bit and it went wide. So I don't know if that was in Beckham's head when when Beckham tried it as well. But um I mean what you know, whatever you think about, you know, Beckham and his career and his celebrity obsession, it's a brilliant goal. I mean I often thought for a long time that it it went to the side of Sullivan. It didn't actually go over him. I yeah. think the camera angle's quite deceptive, but I think he does he does clear him. and it's not a chip either. It's more of a drive. No, he does. It's like it's like a sort of I don't know, like it, like a five iron in golf. If you're going to use it like that, he kind of drives it, doesn't he? And he, um, he's should Sullivan have saved it though? Should a, should a, should a decent keeper have, have got to it? No, um, I, I feel quite strongly about this kind of thing because we want our keepers to be um, sweeper keepers these days. Even then, you had to be off your line. Mm. There were still some offside traps played, and and so on. And so there is always space above the keeper's head if you're good enough to find it. And while I'm always at the front of the queue to say that that David Beckham was not the the best English footballer of his generation. In fact, he wasn't the best Manchester United footballer. He wasn't the best Manchester United midfielder. And he wasn't the second best Manchester United midfielder at at that time. He did strike a ball well. And there are players um, who, who do kick the middle of the ball particularly well, which allows them to, to do the kind of thing that, that, that Beckham did there. And I'm always surprised that more players don't do it. It was a, the, Charlie Adam used to try it a few times, didn't he? Because particularly in this age of the sweeper keeper, because even if you miss and everybody laughs, if you, if you miss, it still puts the keeper that five yards further back when, from their starting position. So you gain five yards of space because the keeper has to be on the lookout for it. And it's a, I think it's a much underused tactic and, I know it's the last minute of the match and they're already winning and it's a bit of a hail Mary, but, um, it was it was a smart move by a smart player who maximised the gifts he had, and his main gift was striking the ball with that right foot. And uh, it's a it's it's a brilliantly conceived and brilliantly executed goal. And I'm surprised we don't have more of them really. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think it should be underestimated how difficult a skill it is as well to strike a ball like that. I mean, it's often there's a lot of revisionism with Beckham's career. And, you know, one of the criticism you always hear of him is that he could never beat a man was, well, how many people can, you know, cross a ball like David Beckham? I mean, he didn't need to, did he? Yeah. No, it's well, yeah. obsession with beating people if you don't need to do it. Yeah, but I mean, those players in themselves, you know, dribblers who can go past people at will and, you know, put an end product on it, they're very, very rare. I mean, it's not like everyone but Beckham. You know, he could doing. beat a man, Danielson. Yeah. <laughs> Would you rather have him in your team or David Beckham? Take your yeah. pick. But um, yeah, I mean, and this this goal on that day. I mean, how, how many times have we seen that now? It's uh, that was his career off and running. I think he scored on at Derby a few uh, weeks later as well, which was just before um, Hoddle announced his England squad. And, and Darren Anderton, who was playing on the right for England, um, was injured, and then he, he subsequently sure had the whole season. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that that spot opened up on the right for Beckham and the England team and he was straight in and then he, he never budged for 10 years basically um, it's just the kind of you know the stars aligned for him or whatever you want to say and well, yeah, he, he, he had away. to budge when he he had to budge when he got sent off but I know what you mean <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> oh Gary with your contrary views uh, so um, final game and the final bit of the pod uh, Southampton played Chelsea on the Sunday I believe and there's a link back to the to the Beckham thing isn't isn't there Mike yeah, so I think so. This game took place on the Sunday, so everyone would have seen match of the day and Beckham's goal by this point. And Leboeuf uh, has a Yahoo at a, <laughs> a fifty-yard lob of um, I can't remember who was in goal for Southampton at that point. It wouldn't have been Dave Besson, would it? I can't remember. It was, but, um, it was Dave Besson, yeah. Was it? Oh yeah, but and he, he just shanks it terribly wide. But um, there was a lot of focus on Chelsea. I mean, it was the first. Uh, live game of the season on Sky. Howitt had just taken over from Hoddle um, as the manager. Would go on to win the FA Cup that season as well. And then in that little period at the end of the 90s, so from with Howitt and then when Viali took over afterwards, they won five cups, Chelsea, of you know, varying descriptions. I mean, a lot of people think that Chelsea's establishment as a English and European force just, you know, fell out of the sky after Abramovich started putting his money in. But from this point on, uh, they became a you know a serious team, Chelsea. They had Roberto Di Matteo, who they signed for a lot of money, uh, Leboeuf, and obviously, you know, Viali as well went into the team up front. He just won a European Cup with Juventus. I mean, you could really see from there that, you know, I think Chelsea were, uh, you know, going about things a different way. Yeah. Was this around the time that Chelsea became the first team to field a starting 11, none of whom were, were British. But, I mean, Dennis Wise was usually in that uh, first choice, wasn't he? But it was if it wasn't this season, it wasn't long after. And, you know, there, there's mention, I think, on the highlights of Chelsea's Foreign Legion, and there was a lot of talk about how many of the players were uh, were were foreign-born um, playing for, for Chelsea. Because it's amazing looking at those highlights, just how many British names you get. And you get the sort of... You know, the blandness of a Steve Jones playing for West Ham. And of course, you know, those players are still there now. But um, but the foreign players still stood out in those days. Teams had one or two, but uh, Chelsea certainly had uh, had more than, than most for sure. Yeah, well, I think Chelsea started with John Spencer up front that day. but And I think it was in 97, 98 that they fielded a team yeah. of uh, 11 non-English players. And there was always a certain non-British, I think, Michael. Non-British, uh, sorry. Yeah, I think I think so. 
Yeah, but there was always a kind of yeah, it was referred to with a kind of sense of distaste. I mean, you can even see it on the the highlights clips that we kind of looked at before we uh, before we did this show. That um, it was viewed with you know a bit of suspicion that you know Chelsea would have this many overseas players kind of playing for them. But um, and you know that's I guess down to that stereotypical British distrust of the foreigner. There's actually quite a funny. Uh, Quip on it from the news announcer where he says Southampton they have an overseas star of their own he's from Guernsey in <laughs> reference to uh, in reference to Matt Letizia. This is the most one-sided nil-nil you'll ever see. By the way, Chelsea should have won this game about eight-nil. Oh blimey! Yeah. I don't think actually in the highlights package I don't think Southampton get into Chelsea's half at any time. It's incredible. It, it, that was a nil-nil win for Southampton. It was amazing. So there you go. That's a rundown of the 1996-97 um, weekend of fixtures. We're going to do. We're going. We are just going to do these types of episodes. We will be doing the more long featured um, sort of subject episodes as well. This series, but we'll also be doing this where we dip into some weekends of fixtures. By all means, get in touch with us and tell us if there's any particular weekend of fixtures you think we should be focusing on, and we'll uh, we'll have a, we'll consider that. It all depends on what we can get on YouTube, quite frankly. So we, because while we remember some bits, we don't remember everything. So just leaves for me to say. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, and it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from you, Gary. Yes, goodbye. I look forward to being back on again soon. And see you soon, Mike. Bye. See you again soon. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Sports Social Podcast Network.